Scarfo didn't fancy himself a jerk-off. Scarfo, who would come to be known as Little Nicky for his diminutive size, stood a mere five feet, five inches. He was voted most talkative by his classmates at Benjamin Franklin High School, which he graduated from in 1947. And his senior yearbook declared the same year that he was out to lick the world. What Scarfo lacked in height, he made up for in fearlessness. Despite his size, he began to box in his late teens under the name Nick Scarfo and amassed an impressive record in small club fights on the Philadelphia boxing circuit. But as the 1950s came, the bantamweight Scarfo decided that he was better suited for life outside the ring. Nicky Scarfo wanted to be a gangster, just like the movie star mobsters he grew up admiring in the shoot-em-up flicks he would sneak into the theater to see as a kid. Guys like Paul Muni in the 1932 gangster classic Scarface, not the top baseball players of the late 1940s, like Stan Musial and Ted Williams, were Nicky Scarfo's idols. Like the working stiff, athletes were also jerk-offs to little Nicky. It's sad to say, but my uncle looked down on his own father because he was a hard-working guy and not a gangster. He was never outwardly disrespectful to his father, but they weren't very close. My uncle's only ambition in life was to be a gangster, even from the time he was young. In the late 1940s and early 50s, Scarfo began his mob apprenticeship, working as a bartender and a bookmaker at Piccolo's 500 where his schooling in the ways of La Cosa Nostra began under the direction of his uncles, the Buck brothers. While Nicholas Nicky Buck Piccolo was teaching his nephew about the ins and outs of mob business life, like how to be a bookmaker and run numbers, Felix Skinny Razor de Tulio, one of the mob's most feared hitmen, was teaching him how to be a killer. My uncle's first hit, he did it with Skinny Razor, the guy in South Philly who had a fruit stand. He called him the Huckster. The Huckster's brother had a problem with Skinny Razor, and Skinny Razor got the okay to kill him. So him and my uncle went to the guy's store in South Philadelphia. It was during a real bad snowstorm, and the guy let them into the store, and they killed him. They stabbed him to death. When they were done, they cut his balls off and put them in the guy's mouth. That's how my uncle learned about killing being around Skinny Razor. Felix Skinny Razor de Tulio took an early liking to the young Scarfo, and little Nicky was an eager student. Bonding in bloodlust, Skinny Razor taught Scarfo the art of the mob hit. It was a skill he would cherish, continue to hone, and eventually master. By 1954, at the age of 25, Nicodemo Little Nicky Scarfo acquired the reputation in the underworld that he had sought. He was known as a mad dog killer, thanks in large part to the teachings of his mob mentor, Skinny Razor de Tulio. Scarfo was proposed for membership in La Cosa Nostra by de Tulio and his uncle Nicholas, Nicky Buck Piccolo, and as a result was formally inducted into the mob by then Philadelphia mob boss, Joseph Ida, at an official making ceremony held at a restaurant and lounge named Sans Souci in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, just over the bridge from Center City, Philadelphia. Two of Scarfo's uncles, Tony and Mike Piccolo, the younger brothers of Nicholas Nicky Buck Piccolo, 
were also inducted into La Cosa Nostra at the same ceremony. Mickey Scarfo had achieved his dream. He was a bona fide wise guy, a made man. The blueberry farms of Hamilton were ancient history. He would never again be a working stiff, a civilian, a jerk-off. Back then, it was almost unheard of to be made at such a young age in Philadelphia. My uncle was only 25. His uncles, Tony and Mike Buck, who were made at the same time, were twice his age. They were close to 50 at the time. Even then, Nicky Scarfo was on the fast track in La Cosa Nostra. Because he was with Skinny Razor, my uncle got to meet a lot of gangsters in North Jersey and New York, and they respected him because Skinny Razor had a reputation of being a stone-cold killer, and everyone knew it. He was both feared and respected on the streets. And my uncle looked up to him. He wanted to be just like him. In 1957, with Pasquale out of the picture, Nancy and four-year-old Philip would leave Philadelphia and settle into the Scarfo family compound in Atlantic City, which at the time was more than a decade past its prime. Nancy would take a job in Atlantic City working for the Bureau of Children's Services, which functioned like an adoption agency and provided care for underprivileged children. With his father out of the picture, Philip gravitated towards Nancy's older brother, his uncle Nick, as a father figure. At that time, it was just my mother, my grandparents, and myself living on Georgia Avenue. My father was gone. I was just a little boy, maybe five or six years old. My uncle was still living in South Philadelphia, but he used to come down a lot to see us or to do business with Skinny Razor. In the 1950s and 60s, Felix Skinny Razor de Tulio was a mob captain, a caporegime, and the Philadelphia mob's top guy at the Jersey Shore. And Nicky Scarfo was quickly becoming his number one protege. When Philip was seven years old, his great-grandmother, Catherine Scarfo's mother, died. The wake and funeral remain etched in Philip's memory more than five decades later. Back then, the Italian wakes lasted three days. I remember my grandmother and her brothers, the Piccolo brothers, Joe, Mike, and Nick, were standing next to the coffin, and all of these people were coming in to pay their respects. I was standing in the audience with my uncle Nick, and in walked the man with several guys around him. Everybody was going over to pay their respects to him and shake his hand or kiss him on the cheek. I remember this man looked very important, like the president. So I said to my uncle, who's that guy? And he said, that's Angelo Bruno. He's the boss of the family. And even though I was only seven years old, I understood what he was talking about. As I got older, I started spending more time with my uncle. He was like my father, because my real father was gone. When we were alone, he would talk to me about what La Cosa Nostra was all about how we were different from everyone else, and how we had certain rules that we had to follow. It's how I was raised from the time I was a little boy. When Philip was eight years old, his uncle Nick was given an order by his mentor, Felix Skinny Razor de Tulio, a wayward mob associate named Dominic Reds Caruso, the disrespected Joseph, Joe the boss, Brunietta, consigliere, or counselor, to the family's boss. Angelo Bruno. And Bruno had hand-picked Skinny Razor's up-and-coming protege, Nicky Scarfo, 
to oversee Caruso's murder. Scarpa was happy to oblige and show Bruno and DiTulio that he was an able killer, a real gangster. To kill Reds Caruso, Salvatore Chucky Merlino, one of Scarpo's oldest friends, would go to Caruso's home in South Philadelphia and tell him that Scarpo wanted to see him. Like a scene out of the very type of movie he loved so much as a young boy, Scarpo lulled Caruso into a state of relaxation, taking him to a bar in Vineland, New Jersey, that was owned by an associate of the Bruno crime family. Two more Bruno associates, Santo, little Santo, Romeo, and Anthony Casello were inside the bar, with Romeo working as a bartender. Shortly after arriving at the bar, Scarpo wasted little time in carrying out the hit. Little Nicky pulled out a handgun and shot Caruso six times at point-blank range. But Red's Caruso was still alive. My uncle told me the guy was lying there after he shot him, and he said, You got me, Nick. And my uncle grabbed an ice pick from the bar, and he stabbed him over and over again in the back until he died. He told me he stabbed him so hard that the ice pick got stuck in his back. Part of it broke off when he tried to pull it out. But killing Caruso wasn't enough. The Sicilian-born Bruno had wanted him killed in a certain way to send a message. And while he wanted Scarpo to oversee the murder, he wanted another up-and-coming mobster to actually commit it. Ange had ordered that this Red's Caruso be strangled to death, not shot, because he had talked fresh to Joe the boss, and he wanted Santo Idone to strangle him and send a message that his mouth had gotten him killed. These ciggies were big into sending messages. But what happened is Santo Idone was late getting to the bar. By the time he got there, my uncle had already killed the guy. And when the boss says he wants a guy killed and he wants it done a certain way, the way you gotta do it. So when Santo got there, my uncle had him choke the corpse with some rope and leave marks around the neck so just in case they found the body, Ange would know that he had been strangled like he ordered. Scarfo would also now have a lifelong ally in Santo Idone, who was born in Calabria, the same part of Italy where Scarfo's family came from. My uncle told me that Santo told him, thanks for covering for me, Nick. I won't forget it. And my uncle said, you and me are calabrese. We gotta stick together around all these ciggies. The hit team, led by Scarfo, would leave Caruso's dead body inside the bar as another team removed the body and moved it to another location, where a third team was supposed to dig a hole and bury the body, which was doused in lime to accelerate its decomposition. But what they did was they got a fourth group to dig up the body and move it somewhere else. So that way the guys who did the killing and the guys who moved the body and the group that buried the body the first time had no idea where the body was in case someone flipped and ratted them out. As Caruso's bullet-ridden corpse, still with part of an ice pick lodged in his back, lay buried in a makeshift grave somewhere in South Jersey, Scarfo still had work to do. Skinny Razor wanted my uncle to take the truck that had been used to transport the body back to Philadelphia so it could be destroyed, so no one could trace any evidence from the killing. My uncle decided to take me along because he thinks that it would look less suspicious driving this truck if he was with a little boy. I was eight years old at the time, 
As we were driving, he told me that he had killed a very bad man the night before, and he needed my help in getting rid of the truck they used to transport the body. Here I was, an eight-year-old kid, and these guys that I looked up to, they needed my help. I felt like I was doing what was right, because my uncle said the man they killed was a very bad man who had broken the rules, and when you break the rules, this is what happens. This was what La Cosa Nostra was all about, the rules. I understood this from a very early age. My uncle was always talking about the rules, and how you can't break them. I remember my uncle describing how he killed the guy, how he shot him and stabbed him with an ice pick, and what the guy said to him. Looking back, I didn't think there was anything wrong with it. In Philip's young world, everyday life and organized crime were interchangeable. My uncle taught me about our life, the mob, La Cosa Nostra, from an early age. It was natural, almost instinctive for me. I remember just knowing what it meant without someone having to spell it all out for me. I understood what it was. All of the men I looked up to were part of this world. So naturally, I wanted to be a part of it too. When I was 10, my uncle taught me how to shoot. He used to take me hunting, and we would shoot 22s. He said it was important for me to know how to use a gun in our life. Even though I was this young kid, my Uncle Nick always talked to me like I was an adult. He didn't treat me like I was 10 or 11. Everything he did, I wanted to do. I wanted to be just like him. In my mind, he was a man of honor and respect. Obviously, my uncle wasn't your average uncle. I mean, he wasn't out in the yard playing catch with me or coaching my little league baseball team. He was teaching me how to shoot guns and how to commit a murder and then how to successfully cover your tracks. That's the kind of stuff I grew up around. And it seemed completely normal to me. I felt like Marilyn on that old TV show, The Munsters, the one human member of the family who lived amongst all of these strange characters. But I didn't think twice about it. It's scary to think how natural it all was. As Philip got ready for junior high school in St. Michael's in Atlantic City, his uncle had to deal with his first serious brush with the law. In May of 1963, my uncle and Chucky Merlino were in the Oregon Diner in South Philadelphia. My uncle gets into an argument with this longshoreman, this big Irish guy. And my uncle's little. He's only 5'5 and weighs like 135 pounds. So he and the longshoreman get into an argument over a booth. And the guy grabs my uncle by the throat and starts choking him. As he's choking him, he pushes my uncle up against the counter. My uncle is getting ready to pass out, and he reaches on the counter behind him and grabs a butter knife, stabs the guy in the chest. The knife went right into his heart, and the guy died. My uncle used to love to tell this story about how he gutted this big Irish guy. The way he would tell the story, you'd think he was talking about hitting a home run to win the World Series. He would act it out take his hands and simulate what the guy had done by putting his hands around his neck, showing how the guy had choked him. Then he'd show how he grabbed the knife and thrusted it right into the guy's heart. He was so proud of himself that he killed this guy, who was bigger than him, with a butter knife. Nicky Scarfa would plead guilty to manslaughter for the killing of William Dugan, the Irish guy in the diner. His sentence was a mere 23 months in prison. 
He was out in less than a year and would join the rest of his family in Atlantic City, leaving Philadelphia behind. For now. Ducktown. In the mid-1960s, Ducktown was a small, close-knit Atlantic City neighborhood populated by prominent, working-class Italian families with names like Rando, Formica, Di Giacinto, Matteo, Vassile, Sacco, and Mancuso. And now, it would be home to the Scarfos and Leonettis. Spanning a few short blocks, Ducktown covered the area of Texas, Florida, Georgia, Mississippi, and Missouri Avenues, from Atlantic Avenue to Fairmount Avenue and to the Bay. The neighborhood was named Ducktown for the duck houses that were built along the bayfront. Poultry and waterfowl were raised there and then slaughtered and later resold in neighborhood markets. Ducktown was Atlantic City's Little Italy. Within two blocks of where we lived on Georgia Avenue, you had the White House, which is the best sub shop in the world. Everyone has been there. Beatles, Muhammad Ali, Frank Sinatra, you name it, they've all eaten at the White House. You have Angelo's and Angeloni's, two of the city's best Italian restaurants two blocks away. Before Angeloni's became Angeloni's, it was called the Madrid. There was Doc's Oyster House right around the corner, which had the best seafood in Atlantic City, Barbera's Fish Market, and the city's top Italian bakeries, Rondo's, Formica's, and Panarelli's were all a block or two away. There was a coffee shop called Tommy House, right next to Angeloni's on Arctic Avenue. The older men used to go in there and play the number, and there was always a card game going. When I was a little boy, my grandfather used to take me down there when he would go. Joe DiMaggio used to go in there every time he was in Atlantic City, and I'd see him hanging out with the guys from the neighborhood, playing cards and drinking espresso not even 50 yards from where we lived. On Missouri and Atlantic, you had Skinny D'Amato's 500 Club, which at the time was the biggest nightclub around. People would come from Philadelphia and New York to go there. The Lions would be around the block every night. Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., they all used to perform there. Skinny was a friend of my uncle, so we always got the best seats in the house. I remember this guy we used to call Blah Blah Buckets. He was older, and the neighborhood kids would tease him because he was slow. I think he worked at the 500 Club. He was nuts. He'd always be chasing someone up the street, cursing and threatening to kill them. He was out there every day, and the kids never stopped breaking his balls. Like clockwork, if you stayed on the street long enough, you'd see a group of kids running and Blah Blah chasing after them, threatening to kill them. I had a lot of fun growing up there. This was my home. Phillips' weekly regimen at that time included waking up at 6.30 a.m. on Fridays and walking a block and a half to Barbera's Fish Market on Mississippi Avenue, where he would pick up fresh fish and then deliver it to the nuns who worked and lived at St. Michael's, the neighborhood's Catholic church and the namesake of the adjacent school that Philip attended. The back of the school was directly across the street from the Scarfo compound. Everyone in the neighborhood went to St. Mike's. I went to Mass every morning before school, and I'd go on Sundays with my grandmother. After my uncle got out of jail for killing the guy in the Oregon diner, he left South Philadelphia, and he moved in with us on Georgia Avenue. Living there at the time were my grandparents, my mother, 
myself, my uncle and his wife Mimi. Right around this time, Mickey Jr. was born. Things were quiet for a while, and a couple years later, I was getting ready for high school. Upon graduating from St. Michael's, Philip would move on to Holy Spirit High School, located in Absecon, New Jersey, less than 10 miles from the Scarfo family home in Ducktown. I was on the basketball team at Holy Spirit with a lot of kids from the neighborhood, and we were a very good team. My uncle used to come to the games and sit in the bleachers, and he would take bets on the games right there in the gymnasium. There was even this guy named Hoffman who used to write the betting lines on our games in the local paper. When our team played, it was a very big deal. A fellow Ducktown resident and Holy Spirit teammate named Chris Ford would eventually go on to Villanova University and then to the NBA, where he played for both the Detroit Pistons and the Boston Celtics. After retiring as a player, Ford coached NBA teams in Boston, Milwaukee, Los Angeles, and Philadelphia. Chris Ford was a big deal to all of the kids in Ducktown because he was such an amazing athlete, and he was one of us. He grew up right there on Missouri Avenue on top of Capone's Bar. His brother Harry eventually moved into one of the apartments in our building and would always tell us who was coming around when we weren't there. He stood all day on the porch above our office, which was on the ground floor of 28 North Georgia Avenue, smoking a cigarette and just watching what was going on in the neighborhood, who was coming, who was going. He'd also help my mother and grandmother if me or my uncle weren't around. My uncle would always have me give him a few bucks. While Ducktown may have been energetic and thriving in the mid to late 60s, the rest of Atlantic City was desolate. 20 years past its prime at the world's playground. Mickey Scarfo was surviving on traditional mob rackets like bookmaking, extortion, and loan sharking to make ends meet. Skinny Razor died in 1966. So my uncle became the top mob guy in Atlantic City. He basically inherited what Skinny Razor had, and Ange gave him the okay to run it how he saw fit. For the most part, he was the only game in town. He was making book and writing small loans, but he was struggling as there wasn't a whole lot going on down there at the time. Him and a friend of his named Tommy Butch opened a place called the Penguin Club. And he was also involved in a couple of dirty bookstores with this guy named Alvin Feldman, who called himself the King of the Jews. He wasn't making a lot of money, but to him at that time, the money wasn't important. He would always say, the money will come. But this thing is about respect and honor. It's not about money. He was making a name for himself within the Bruno organization. And that's what mattered the most to him, his reputation. While the nuns at Holy Spirit were teaching Philip the basic curriculum of English, algebra, and history, his uncle Nick continued to educate him in the ways of the mob. He was constantly talking to me about La Cosa Nostra. It was all the time. He told me, in this life, never rat. Keep your mouth shut, you mind your own business. He told me, we don't ever discuss our business with women, and we don't discuss our life with outsiders. You don't tell nobody nothing. It's just me and you talking. He would say, if you want to get involved with me in this thing, just because I'm your uncle, I can't help you. He told me I had to do things on my own and be my own man. At this point, I was ready. 
I wanted to be like him. I wanted to follow in his footsteps. With his uncle ready to begin his second stretch in jail, Philip would have his chance to do just that. Yardville. In 1971, as Philip was graduating from high school, Nikki Scarfo was called to testify before the New Jersey State Commission of Investigation, SCI, that was investigating the infiltration of organized crime into various labor unions. After refusing to answer any questions, including his name, Scarfo was charged with contempt and sentenced to an indefinite prison term. He was sent to Yardville State Prison just outside of Trenton, New Jersey, with several other powerful mobsters, including the boss of the Philadelphia mob, Angelo Bruno. Scarfo could have been released at any time had he honored the subpoena and testified before the SCI. But instead, he followed the same rule that he had taught his nephew, Philip, and refused to testify. Scarfo would spend the next two years behind bars. Already a proven killer, it was now known that little Nicky could keep his mouth shut. Besides Scarfo and Bruno, there was longtime New York mob leader Jerry Catina, Trenton mob captain Nicky Russo, North Jersey mobster Ralph Blackie Napoli, and Genovese crime family capos Anthony Little Pussy Russo, Joseph Bayonne Joe Ziccarelli, and John Johnny Coca-Cola Lardieri and an up-and-coming Genovese soldier named Louis Fabi Mana. Like Scarfo and Bruno, the others were also jailed for refusing to testify before the State Commission of Investigation. Organized crime investigators and members of the press dubbed them the Yardville Nine. For Scarfo, the two-year prison sentence did wonders for his career. Not only did he get valuable face time with Philadelphia mob boss Angelo Bruno, but he also got close to men deeply entrenched in mob operations in North Jersey and New York and forged bonds that he would exploit to his advantage in the years to come. For Philip Leonetti, his uncle's prison term would help jumpstart his career in the underworld as he acted as an emissary for both his uncle and for Bruno and ingratiated himself with the mob heavyweights from New York, whom Philip would interact with when visiting his uncle. When my uncle was in Yardville, it allowed him to get closer to Angelo Bruno, which was a good thing. Back then, my uncle had a lot of respect for Ange, and Ange respected my uncle because he knew my uncle was a killer, a gangster, and that my uncle was 100% committed to La Cosa Nostra. Once a week, I used to drive my grandmother to see my uncle, and I would take Ange's wife to see him. On the way back, I would take them both out to lunch. Before long, my uncle and Ange had me taking messages back to their guys on the street in South Philly and Atlantic City. Guys like Phil Testa and Chucky Merlino. At the end of each visit, me, my uncle, and Ange would huddle in a corner, and they would tell me who to see and what to say. I did exactly what they told me. I was still a teenager, 18, 19 years old. My uncle also started getting real close to guys like Jerry Katina, Nick Russo, Blackie Napoli, and Bobby Manna. Gerardo Jerry Catina was a powerful captain in the Genovese crime family and had been a prominent underworld figure for more than 50 years after joining forces with Lucky Luciano and Meyer Lansky in the 1920s during the legendary Castellamarese War. Catina
Cena was the influential boss of the Genovese family's operation in northern New Jersey and was one of four men who ran the family via a structured ruling panel following the imprisonment of the family namesake, Vito Genovese, in 1959. Raffaele Ralph Napoli, known as Blackie, was a mob soldier associated with the Philadelphia mob's North Jersey operation based out of the Down Neck section of Newark. Napoli's capo and direct superior was the powerful and treacherous Sicilian born Antonio Tony Bananas Caponegro, who would become Angelo Bruno's consigliere and the boss of the family's North Jersey crew. Louis Bobby Mana was a rising star in the Genovese family and was a trusted member of the notorious Vincent the Chin Gigantes Greenwich Village crew. My uncle and Bobby Manna became extremely close when they were in Yardville. They were the same age and spent a lot of time together. They would walk the track together and talk about their future plans. They were both considered up-and-comers in the mob, and they were both very committed to La Cosa Nostra. My uncle used to tell me, Bobby is going to be big one day, you watch. He would tap his index finger to his head and say, Bobby has this, meaning he had brains and he was intelligent. My uncle would always say, in La Cosa Nostra, in this thing, you need this, and he would tap his index finger to his head, and you need this, and he would shape his finger like a gun, point it to the ground. A few years after Scarfo and Mana were released from Yardville, Nicky Scarfo's prediction came true about Bobby Mana, when Mana's close friend, Vincent the Chin Giganti, became the boss of the Genovese family. during the 1980s, and immediately named the intelligent Bobby Manna his consigliere, or third in command. The relationship Nicky Scarfo cultivated with Bobby Manna during their walk talks at Yardville State Prison would benefit little Nicky, and by extension Philip, and play a profound role in shaping the Philadelphia Atlantic City mob in the years and decades to come. Philip had graduated from high school, was now becoming immersed in his uncle's secret world, La Cosa Nostra. During the time my uncle was in Yardville, I flew down to Florida to see my father. I hadn't seen him since he left me and my mother when I was a little boy. He had an Italian restaurant in the Orlando area called Leonetti's. We spent a few days together, but that was basically the extent of my relationship with him. He died a few years later, and that was it. From that point on, I was with my uncle every day. College was out. Life in La Cosa Nostra was in. Inizio, the beginning. His uncle's prison term had brought Philip into the mob's inner circle. He was acting as a driver for Angelo Bruno's wife, 
and was delivering messages from his uncle and Bruno to their respective crews in South Philadelphia and Atlantic City. He was rubbing shoulders with men like Jerry Catina, Nicky Russo, Lackey Napoli, and Bobby Manning. He wasn't even 20 years old. On the days I didn't drive my grandmother and Ange's wife to Yardville, I'd go by myself to see my uncle or Ange, and they would give me messages to take back to Philadelphia. Usually, I'd bring the messages to Phil Testa or Chucky Merlino. My uncle would also give me messages for the Blade, who was in Atlantic City. Philip Chickenman Testa was a man whose star was on the rise in the Philadelphia mob under Angelo Bruno, and would soon be named the family's underboss. When Scarfo's mentor, Felix Skinny Razor de Tullio, died in 1966, his immediate supervisor, or captain, became an old-time South Philly mobster named Alfred Freddy Ayetzi, who was close with Testa. By extension, Scarfo had also become close with Phil Testa. Testa's son, Salvatore, who was known on the streets as Salvi, was only a few years younger than Philip. What Scarfo was doing by way of grooming Philip for life in the mob, Phil Testa was doing for Salvi. I had known Phil Testa and Salvi since I was a kid, when I was a baby, Phil Tester would watch me when my mother went shopping on 7th Street in South Philadelphia. Salvi and I were always very close. He was one of my best friends. We were basically raised the same. We were both taught about La Cosa Nostra when we were very young. Me and my uncle would go see them in Philly, or they would come see us at the shore. Chucky was also close with Phil Tester and Salvi. Salvatore Chucky Merlino was Nicky Scarfo's closest friend. Merlino, who was ten years younger than Scarfo, looked up to him like an older brother. And Scarfo mentored him in the ways of La Cosa Nostra, just like Skinny Razor had done for him. Merlino had assisted Scarfo in the Reds' Caruso killing and was by his side when he killed William Dugan in the Oregon Diner. Now, with Scarfo behind bars, Chucky Merlino was running Scarfo's operation in South Philadelphia and Atlantic City carrying out Scarfo's orders in the messages that Philip delivered to him. Messages that soon included murders that the imprisoned Scarfo wanted carried out. Chucky was a great guy, and he loved my uncle. He understood La Cosa Nostra from being around my uncle. My uncle had mentored Chucky the same way Skinny Razor had mentored my uncle. Chucky was a bookmaker and had his own crew in South Philadelphia, and they were all under my uncle, so they treated me with a lot of respect. When I'd go see him, we'd hang out together at the 9M bar downtown. That was one of Chucky's main hangouts. He also had a social club at the corner of Shunk and Sartain Streets in South Philadelphia, where there were always a handful of neighborhood guys playing cards. Or we would go to the city's best restaurants, like the Saloon or Bookbinders. Chucky was a lot of fun, and I enjoyed being around him. He was a very classy guy, always dressed real sharp. He looked like the singer Al Martino, who was also from South Philadelphia, and had played Johnny Fontaine in the Godfather movies. But most importantly, he was fiercely loyal to my uncle. My uncle used to confide in him. He trusted Chucky. Another one of Scarfo's close underworld associates was Nicholas Nick the Blade Virgilio, who was two years older than little Nicky, and a boyhood friend of Scarfo going back to their teenage days on Wharton Street in South Philadelphia. 
He would later join Scarfo in Atlantic City in the mid-1960s, becoming one of his bodyguards and top enforcers. Like Scarfo and Leonetti, Virgilio and his family had left South Philadelphia and settled in a Ducktown Row home right around the corner from the Scarfo compound on Georgia Avenue. We called him the Blade because he stabbed a guy 11 times and killed him. The guy was a sailor, and him and the Blade got into an argument. It happened in 1952, the year before I was born in South Philadelphia. If someone who didn't know him would ask him, why do they call you the Blade? He'd say, because I'm a sharp dresser, sharp as a blade. But Virgilio would prove to be versatile in his murderous ways. While Scarfo was in Yardville, Virgilio had killed a man on an Atlantic City street corner, shooting him right in front of a marked Atlantic City police cruiser, and as a result, was looking at a long prison stretch. Blade had a girlfriend whose stepfather was abusing her, and she'd always cry to him about it. So one night when he was drunk, he sees the stepfather on the street, and he shoots him right in front of the cops. That was the Blade. He didn't give a fuck that the cops were right there. Shrug it off and say, that fucking guy had it coming. I don't care who was watching. From jail, Scarfo had arranged for the Blade to get a lenient sentence using a Wheeler Dealer Atlantic City lawyer and part-time municipal court judge named Edwin Eddie Helfant. Helfant was paid $6,000 to pay off the judge in Virgilio's case in exchange for a reduced sentence. Helfant took the $6,000 and Virgilio got 15 years, not the lenient sentence he or Scarfo had in mind. Blade was like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He was the nicest guy in the world when he was sober. But when he was drunk, he was evil. He was like Skinny Razor and my uncle, in the sense that was a no-nonsense, stone-cold killer. The three of them used to hang together in Atlantic City in the early days, before Skinny Razor died. When my uncle got out of Yardville, the Blade was in prison. Judge Halfant had made a big mistake by crossing the Blade, but an even bigger mistake by crossing my uncle. On the very day he was released from Yardville, my uncle told me he was going to kill Halfant. The fact that Halfant was a judge meant absolutely nothing to my uncle. My uncle didn't give a fuck. He'd say, this Jew cocksucker wants to play games with me? We'll see about that. Two days later, he told me we were going to wait until the Blade got out of jail, because the Blade had gotten word to my uncle from jail that he wanted to do it himself. You've heard the phrase, forgive and forget? My uncle would never forgive, and he would never forget. Once he got something in his mind, that was it. It was over. When Scarfo got out of Yardville and returned to Atlantic City in the summer of 1973, his gang was beginning to take shape. Things were on the upswing. In addition to Philip, who was now 20 years old and well-schooled in the ways of La Cosa Nostra, Scarfo's two childhood friends, Salvatore, Chucky Merlino, and Nicholas Nick the Blade Virgilio, formed the inner circle of Scarfo's gang. With the Blade in jail and Merlino based in South Philadelphia, Scarfo decided it was time to infuse some new blood into his Atlantic City crew. Among the new faces was Chucky Merlino's younger brother, Lawrence, who had recently relocated from South Philadelphia and was living in an apartment inside the Scarfo family compound on Georgia Avenue in Atlantic City. 
Lawrence was a great guy. And like his brother Chucky, he was very loyal to my uncle. He and I were closer in age, so we spent a lot of time together. One time I was at a bar in Atlantic City with Vince Falcone and a few girls, and I got into a fight with some kid who was involved in a local motorcycle gang. We were at a place called the Sandbar, and this guy tried to pick up the girl that I was with. So me and him got into it. We got into a fight, and it had gotten broken up, and we ended up leaving the bar. So I go home, and I grab a ski mask and a pistol, and I go back to the bar. I walk right in, and the kid was still there with his whole gang, a bunch of wannabe tough guys. I walked right up to him, raised the gun, shot him in the arm. I wasn't trying to kill him, but I did want to send a message to him and his friends that you don't raise your hands to us. That's something my uncle always taught me. The guys he was with start running out of there. They are going out every exit, every door they could find. I think one of them jumped out the fucking window. This kid I shot, this fucking punk motherfucker is screaming. He's going nuts. He's crying like a little girl. This is in the early 70s, before the casinos. Later that night, around 1 a.m., here comes all these motorcycles down Georgia Avenue, revving up their engines, making all this fucking noise. They woke the whole neighborhood up. The leader of the gang is in the middle of the street, and he is hollering, Where's Philip Leonetti? He started banging on the door, and he woke up my grandparents. These guys are looking for me because they knew I shot their friend. Lucky for him, neither me nor my uncle were home at the time. We would have killed him right there on the street and left him in the gutter. The next day, we hear all about it from my mother and my grandparents. My uncle asks me what happened at the bar, and I tell him the whole story about the fight and me shooting the guy in the arm. The whole thing was no big deal to me. Now, my uncle is furious. He tells me, you find out who this big mouth cocksucking jerk-off is and where he lives, and we're going to send this motherfucker and anyone connected to him a message before they come around here and bother our people again. You understand? My uncle told me to use Lawrence, and he said, I want everyone down here to get the message loud and clear. So I tell Lawrence what my uncle said. We find out who the guy was and that he lived on Chelsea Avenue. My uncle takes me and Lawrence down there, and we see his house, and we work out a route back to Georgia Avenue for after we shoot him. So one night, me and Lawrence are watching his place, and we see him leaving, and Lawrence jumps out with a 22, and he shoots him in the stomach a few times, which is exactly what my uncle had ordered. My uncle had said, if he dies, he dies. If he doesn't, he doesn't. Him and his friends will get the message either way. Lucky for the guy, he didn't die. And after that, we didn't have any more problems with him or his gang, and my uncle was happy. All the other tough guys in Atlantic City had gotten the message. Lawrence proved to my uncle that he would follow orders to a T and that he wasn't afraid to use a gun. It showed my uncle that Lawrence was a solid guy and that Chucky had taught him all about La Cosa Nostra. Two local cement contractors named Alfredo Ferraro and Vincent Falcone, who had befriended both Scarpo and Leonetti and were constantly in their presence, and a business-savvy, street-smart Jewish gangster named Saul Kane, who had relocated to the Jersey Shore from North Philly, rounded out the core of Nicky Scarfo's Atlantic City crew in the mid-1970s. I used to hang around a lot with Vincent Falcone, me and Lawrence. He was with me that night at the sandbar when I had the problems with the motorcycle guys. 
Vince was a few years older than me, and he was married. But he used to go out and drink several nights a week. He always had a lot to say. He was very opinionated and had a bit of an ego. Vince was always complaining about money. Who he owed, who owed him, how much he was making, how much other guys were making. Just constant complaining. My uncle liked him, but would always say, he's not Cosa Nostra, meaning he didn't have the right mindset or attitude. Alfredo was a bit older, and he and Vince were very close. Their families had come to the United States together from Argentina. They were both Italian, but they were from Argentina. My uncle, he'd say things like, these two guys, they're not like us, meaning they didn't think like us. Both Alfredo and Vince were cement contractors, and Alfredo had taught me the ins and outs of the concrete business. Now, Saul Kane was the character. He loved Meyer Lansky, and he was Jewish, so we called him Meyer. Years later, my uncle arranged for Saul to meet Meyer Lansky down in Florida. It was like a Catholic priest meeting the Pope. Saul was in heaven. Saul was a great guy and a lot of fun to be with. He owned a bar in Atlantic City, the My Way Lounge, and he worked as a bail bondsman. He used to hang out a lot with me and Lawrence, either at the My Way or Teddy's West End Lounge on Trenton Avenue. My uncle loved Saul and would do like he did with Bobby Manor index finger to his head, meaning Saul was smart, but he'd say, he can never get this, and he'd rub his thumb and index finger together, meaning his butt, because he was Jewish, not Italian. In this thing, La Cosa Nostra, you had to be 100% Italian to be made. That was one of the rules. We could do business with Saul, and he could be with us, but he could never get straightened out and become a full-fledged member. As Scarfo continued to build his mob crew, Atlantic City, the down-and-out seaside resort which Scarfo controlled, was about to be brought back to life with legalized casino gambling, coming to town as a way to stimulate the once-thriving resort. Overnight, both Scarfo's and Atlantic City's futures began to look much brighter. The World's Playground the city on the Atlantic was founded in 1854. Its name was a testament to its location, which was buttressed by the picturesque seascape of the Atlantic Ocean's waterfront. This new city was uncharted territory and quickly became a real estate developer's dream, life with commercial opportunity and promise. From the moment that Atlantic City was incorporated, it was designed to appeal to tourists from all over the world as a premier resort locale and vacation destination with sandy beaches, fine dining, world-class entertainment, and some of the nation's most luxurious and lavish hotels. The city's crown jewel, the Atlantic City Boardwalk, would be constructed in 1870 and was a seven-mile stretch of oceanfront property that featured a diverse array of decadence and commerce. In 1878, the Philadelphia to Atlantic City Railroad was constructed as a means of bringing tourists to the seaside resort. In 1880, the city was officially open for business. Within five years, Atlantic City was one of the top tourist attractions in the world. And by the turn of the 20th century, the area experienced a massive real estate boom, finding itself on the cutting edge of both hotel architecture and high society culture. Extravagant hotels and posh restaurants and nightclubs dotted every inch of the boardwalk and its surrounding area as a 
city became a playground for the country's rich and famous. During Prohibition, Enoch Nucky Johnson, the colorful Atlantic County treasurer and racketeer, ushered in an era that bolstered more corruption and decadence than the notoriously crooked coastal enclave had ever seen. Controlling the state's extremely powerful Republican political machine with an iron fist, Johnson became the unofficial ambassador for Atlantic City and oversaw a wide array of vice rackets that included bootlegging, illegal gambling, and prostitution. Nucky encouraged racketeers from all over the country to set up shop in Atlantic City, and many obliged him, paying him for the opportunity to do so. The city by the Atlantic was now the world's playground. With booze and broads by the boatload, it became the mecca of vice. In essence, the original Sin City, long before modern Las Vegas was even contemplated. Nucky Johnson's life would forever be memorialized in HBO's popular television series, Boardwalk Empire, which chronicled Atlantic City in the 1920s from the perspective of a corrupt political boss named Enoch Nucky Thompson, a character played by actor Steve Buscemi and loosely based on Johnson and his political regime. Nucky Johnson's reign as both Atlantic City's political boss and top vice lord crumbled in 1941 when he was convicted on charges of tax evasion for hiding proceeds from several policy lottery operations he was running throughout the city. He was sent off to federal prison for the next few years. As World War II came to an end, so did Atlantic City's tenure as the world's playground. By the 1950s, Atlantic City had lost its luster. Year-round tropical destinations like Florida, Cuba, and the Bahamas have become cheaper and more popular alternatives with everyday Americans and the rich and famous. Also heading west for Las Vegas, the up-and-coming desert oasis that had by then eclipsed Atlantic City as the new mecca of vice. With the Atlantic City boardwalk decaying and poverty engulfing the city's economy, most of the grand hotels of yesteryear, like the Breakers, the Shelbourne, the Traymore, the Mayflower, and the Marlboro, were all demolished. Drugs and crime replaced fun in the sun as the region's most prominent features. Press coverage of the city's plight, stemming from the conditions encountered by the national media when they descended on Atlantic City, for the 1964 Democratic Convention sent tourists scurrying. As the late 1960s became the early 1970s, the once bustling resort town had gone bust. It was practically a ghost town. It wouldn't be for long. And the boardwalk empire that little Nicky was building would make Nucky Johnson wet his tweed trousers. <laughs> the Resurrection. The date was June 2nd, 1977, and early that Thursday morning there was something in the air, something that had not been present in these parts for more than three decades. Hope. Hope that the big announcement scheduled for noon at Kennedy Plaza, the ceremonious pavilion in front of the Mammoth Convention Hall on the Atlantic City boardwalk, would restore the city to prominence. Hope that the governor's announcement would breathe life into a city rapidly decaying under an increasing influx of crime, poverty, and neglect. Hope that the second coming of Atlantic City was imminent and that the world's playground was about to be resurrected. 
It was hope that filled the air that Thursday morning. Hope mixed with optimism, skepticism, and a palpable sense of excitement that things were about to change. As the crowd swelled, nearing 1,000, the dignitaries began to take their seats behind the podium on the makeshift stage. Francis Hap Farley, the once powerful state senator who succeeded Nucky Johnson as the boss of the Republican political machine that controlled Atlantic City, was already seated. Once considered the most feared politician in the state, Farley was now a shell of his former self, and on this day, he was merely a spectator. Seated near Farley was the man who dethroned him, Atlantic City's new state senator, Dr. Joseph McGann, the co-sponsor of the bill that was about to change Atlantic City forever. The man who was once lauded by the New York Times as the principal architect that made that change possible. But the star of the show on this day, the man everyone came to see, was New Jersey Governor Brendan Byrne. Byrne was here to announce that legalized casino gambling was coming to the Atlantic City Boardwalk. But Byrne's message of a renaissance for Atlantic City came with a warning. A warning for men like Angelo Bruno, Bill Testa, Nicky Scarfo, Nicholas Nick the Blade Virgilio, and Philip Leonetti. I have made this pledge before to all law enforcement agencies, and I will repeat it again. We will keep the limelight of public opinion focused upon organized crime. I've said it before, and I will repeat again to organized crime. Keep your filthy hands off of Atlantic City. Keep the hell out of our state. At that very moment, less than four blocks away, in a small ground floor office located at 28 North Georgia Avenue, Nicodemo, little Nicky Scarfo, and Philip Crazy Phil Leonetti, precisely two of the men that Byrne was speaking of, were watching the pomp and circumstance on live television. What's this guy talking about? Scarfo said out loud to Leonetti. Doesn't he know we're already here? <laughs> Leonetti just laughed. There was nothing funny about what would happen next. Becoming a killer. In fact, Scarfo had been Atlantic City's primary underworld figure for more than a decade, having assumed the position long before anyone even dreamed of legalized casino gambling and a rebirth for Atlantic City. My uncle had built a nice little crew. For the most part, it was me, Chucky, Lawrence, and the Blade. We were all with my uncle, and my uncle was basically reporting directly to Phil Testa, who by now had become Ange's underboss. We were the top guys in Atlantic City. Everything down there went through us. Nobody made a move or thought about making a move without checking with my uncle first. My uncle had two posters that hung on the wall of our office on Georgia Avenue, each showing a baseball field with all of the bases and home plate. My uncle never watched a game of baseball a day in his life, and he thought baseball players, athletes, and anyone who wasn't in the mob were jerk-offs. But these posters weren't about baseball to my uncle. They symbolized his philosophy of being a gangster. The first poster had the words, This is a home run at the top, and showed the hitter rounding the bases, touching each base and eventually crossing home plate. The second poster had the words, This is not a home run at the top, and showed the hitter rounding the bases but missing second base. 
my uncle would show people those posters and say, you see what happened? And he would point to the second poster and say, this motherfucker hit a home run, but he didn't touch the base, so it didn't count. This thing we're doing, this ain't baseball, and this ain't a game. In this thing, if you don't touch the base, you get this. And he would make his sign like the sign of the gun. He wanted to know what everyone was doing at all times. Touching base with your superiors in the mob was also one of the rules. By this point, Scarfo's reputation as a killer had made him the premier force to be reckoned with in Atlantic City. And in 1976, when a low-level card shark and hustler named Louis DeMarco had run afoul of the Bruno mob and was hiding out in Scarfo's town, Angelo Bruno sent word from Philadelphia down to Nicky Scarfo in Atlantic City that DeMarco was to be killed. Scarfo was happy to oblige. This kid Louis DeMarco was robbing Chicky Narducci's crap games in Philadelphia. Chicky Narducci was one of Angelo Bruno's top guys. His crap games brought in a lot of money for the family. So Chicky Narducci goes and sees Phil Testa and Angelo Bruno and makes a beef about what is going on. Bruno and Testa tell Narducci they are going to find Louis DeMarco and have him killed. Disrespecting a made guy is against the rules, and Chicky Narducci was a made guy. So what happens is, Phil Testa waits a week before calling my uncle and telling him that he wants us to kill Louis DeMarco for robbing Chicky Narducci. Phil Testa and Chicky Narducci had a kind of love-hate relationship. They were always on again, off again. And at the time, they were having problems, so Phil Testa was kind of dogging him. My uncle was unhappy because Phil Testa waited a week and didn't tell him right away. My uncle wanted people to know what kind of people we were. If we were asked to kill someone, we would do it right away, without any hesitation. Our philosophy was bang, bang, and that was that. So my uncle assigns the killing to me and Vince Falcone, so we can prove to my uncle and guys like Ange and Phil Testa that we were killers and that we were serious men, like my uncle. So we put some feelers out on the street to see if anyone has a line on where this Louis DeMarco might be hiding out at hear that he is staying at the Ensign Motel on Pacific Avenue. So I go see a guy I know named Harry the Hack, who had a coffee shop on Missouri Avenue. It was like a hangout. Everybody would hang there. Harry the Hack was Skinny Razor's brother-in-law, and he knew everybody in Atlantic City. So I ask him if he knows who Louis DeMarco is, and Harry the Hack pointed him out to me. He was actually sitting right there in the coffee shop playing cards. So I have Vince Falcone with me, and we stay for a little while, and when Louis DeMarco leaves, we follow him to the Ensign Motel. He has no idea who we are, or that we are following him. There was a local bartender who was with us who had a room at the Ensign, and he gave us the key to his room so that we could wait until DeMarco came out of his room, so that we could get him. <laughs> Philip Leonetti, just 23 years old, was about to commit his first murder. I remember my uncle telling me and Vince that Chicky Narducci wanted this guy real bad. And that if we killed him, it would put me and Vince on the map with Philadelphia. Which meant Angelo Bruno and Phil Testa. And make my uncle's stature in the family stronger, because everyone would know that his crew was serious, and that we were gangsters and killers. I remember being nervous, but I wasn't scared. I didn't think I was doing anything wrong. 
Louis DeMarco was robbing Chicky Narducci, and Chicky Narducci was in our family. Louis DeMarco had broken the rules. When you break the rules, you get killed. This is what my uncle had always taught me. This is what La Cosa Nostra was all about. Before the money, before the power, before everything, came the rules. Louis DeMarco was getting ready to leave his room at the Ensign Motel, and he had no idea what was coming. So we see him walking out, and we run up on him. Me and Vince had masks and gloves on. We were behind him. Never saw us coming. I was the first one to shoot, and I blasted him right in the back of his head. After I shot him, I thought he was running away, but it was the force of the bullet that made him fly forward, and he landed face down. Then me and Vince just emptied our guns into him. I think the first shot killed him. We did it right in the parking lot, right on Pacific Avenue in broad daylight. I remember standing over him and emptying my gun into him. I remember the feeling I had. I felt cold, and I didn't feel any remorse. Louis DeMarco was dead, and Philip Leonetti was now a bona fide mob killer, just like his uncle, Nicky Scarfo. My uncle had me and Vince go over an escape route a few days before the killing. We walked that route several times to make sure we knew where we were going. My uncle told us that after we killed him, he wanted us to throw the guns on the roof of a nearby building, which we did. We then followed the route that we had planned, and my uncle was waiting there in a car to pick us up. We get in the car, and no one says a word. We just drive to the apartment on Georgia Avenue. Now, a few days before the killing, my uncle took me and Vince for a walk and talk through the neighborhood. My uncle didn't discuss killings in the house, and he was paranoid about listening devices. He didn't own a phone. Everything with him was face-to-face. -face. So, while we are walking, he's telling us that he can't wear any jewelry when we do a hit, in case it came off and could be traced back to us. He told us not to say a word when we got in the car and not to speak about the murder when we got back to Georgia Avenue. He told us we had to immediately take a shower and wash real good under our nails and make sure that we had gotten rid of any possible gunpowder residue. He told us to take all the clothes that we had worn and to put them in a trash bag. After we got cleaned up, we would have to go somewhere outside of Atlantic City and dump the bag with the clothes in it. That's what we did after a killing. That was the routine. Just like the lessons his uncle had repeatedly taught him about the rules of La Cosa Nostra when he was a young boy, Nicodemo Scarfa was still the teacher, and Philip was still his student, his most prized pupil. Only now the lessons had advanced on how to commit murder. Mm. And with the DeMarco killing under his belt, Philip had just graduated into the big leagues. Chicky Narducci came down to see us to thank us for what we had done. My uncle was ecstatic. The killing had enhanced not only his reputation within the mob, but mine as well. The guys in Philly knew what we were about, that we were killers, real gangsters. It's what my uncle always wanted, ever since he was around Skinny Razor. It was a reputation that both Nicky Scarfo and Philip Leonetti would enhance, time and time again. Sending a message. Shortly after the DeMarco killing, Philip had gone into business with a friend of his from the neighborhood named Vince Bancari. We needed $12,000 to buy equipment so we could start our own concrete company. 
I had been working with Alfredo, but I told my uncle I wanted to do my own thing, and he agreed. So I went into a business with a friend of mine from the neighborhood. My partner, Vince Bancari, burned his house down, and we used the insurance money to start our company. So one night, me and Vince go out, and we stop by the Flamingo Motel on Pacific Avenue. They had a lounge that a lot of people liked to go to. Judge Helfand, the guy that had double-crossed the blade, owned it. My uncle still wanted to kill him, but the blade was still in jail. So we put killing him on the back burner for the time being. My uncle would say, let it simmer, let it be until our friend comes home. So, when we go into the lounge, we see this kid named Pepe Leva, who was a bookmaker who hung around Judge Helfant and the Flamingo. Vince had loaned him $3,000. Pepe Leva was talking bad about Vince, like threatening him to people around Atlantic City, saying he wasn't going to pay him back. So Vince tells me about it, and I called Pepe Leva over and asked him to step outside. I told him that I wanted to speak with him. So we go outside, and I tell him, you really shouldn't be threatening people. I tell him that Vince is my friend, and I said, you owe him the money, do the right thing and pay him. I'm talking to him like a gentleman. That's how I talk to people. I never came off like a tough guy, unless I had to. And usually at that point, it wasn't me, it was the gun doing the talking. Well, this Pepe Lever starts talking sideways to me, and I don't go for that. So I punched him right in the mouth and knocked his tooth out. There was no more talking nice to him in the parking lot right in front of the Flamingo. Judge Helfand comes running out and he is going nuts, yelling and screaming. He has no idea that we are going to kill him when the Blade gets out of jail. He thinks we don't know that he kept the $6,000 for himself. He just sees me punch this Pepe Leva and he goes crazy. So me and Vince leave. The next day, Judge Helfand makes an appointment to see my uncle. I think they went to the Lido restaurant. Judge Helfand says to my uncle, Nick, your nephew hit this kid and he wants to press charges. My uncle is placating him, telling him to relax. He says, take it easy, we're all friends. Tell the kid to relax and not to press charges. And we will straighten it all out. On June 28, 1977, two days after his fight with Philip Leonetti, Giuseppe Pepe Leva filed a criminal complaint in the Atlantic City Municipal Court charging Philip Leonetti with assault. So what we did was, my uncle worked it out through one of his lawyers, Harold Garber and Judge Helfant, that me and Pepe Lever were going to meet, and we were going to shake hands and bury the hatchet between us. So the next day, Pepe Lever and I meet up at the My Way Lounge, which was Saul Kane's place, and my uncle makes us shake hands. He tells him, we're all Italian, we need to stick together. My uncle tells him to go to the court and to drop the charges and to come back around the next day. Pepe Leva comes back around the next day and tells me and my uncle that he dropped the charges and that he doesn't want any problems with us. My uncle put his arm around him and said, We have no problem with you. You're a friend of Judge Helfand's. We're all friends. So as Pepe Leva is leaving, he apologizes again and shakes hands with my uncle, and then he shakes my hand. My uncle says, See, it's all over. We shake hands like gentlemen, and that's the end of it. Four days later, on July 3rd, 1977, Pepe Leva was found shot to death with the remnants of four 32 caliber slugs in his head. His body was found near a landfill in the Farmington section of Egg Harbor Township. 
less than 10 miles from the Georgia Avenue apartment building where Nikki Scarfo and Philip Leonetti lived. Right after this Levikit filed the charges against me, my uncle went to Philadelphia and got the okay from Angelo Bruno and Phil Tested to pop him, to kill him. This guy was going to testify against me and I might go to jail. My uncle wanted him dead, even if that wasn't going to happen because he had dropped the charges. To my uncle, it was a mortal sin that anyone would raise their hands to us or treat us with anything other than respect. That's why he wanted me and Lawrence to shoot the guy from the motorcycle gang, and that's why he wanted Pepe Levitt dead. He wanted to send a message to everyone that we weren't fucking around. So he got permission to whack him out. That was another one of the rules. You always had to clear a murder with the boss, or you might be the next one to get killed. I was present when my uncle ordered the hit on Pepe Leva. A guy in our crew asked Pepe for a ride home from the city. On the way home, he said to Pepe, Pull over, I gotta take a piss. They got out to take a piss, and that's when he shot Pepe in the head. They had pulled into a trash dump, a landfill. He emptied his gun into Pepe, and then finished taking his piss. He then walked several miles through the woods to his home in the middle of the night. When we saw him a few days later, he was all cut up from the bushes. My uncle said to him, Jesus Christ, what the fuck happened to you? When he told my uncle what had happened and how he ran through the woods to get home, my uncle said, why didn't you take the fucking car? It was right there. He tried to explain himself, but my uncle just shook his head and walked away. That's how he was. Nothing was ever good enough for him. Nikki Scarfo's gang had all participated in murders, which ingratiated them to the bloodthirsty Scarfo and to the mob leaders in Philadelphia. Men like Angelo Bruno, Philip Testa, and Frank Chicky Narducci, and would one day make them eligible for initiation into La Cosa Nostra. Chucky was with my uncle on the Reds Caruso hit. The Blade was in jail for murder, me and Vince Falcone had killed Louis DeMarco. Lawrence had shot the motorcycle guy, and now Pepe Leva was dead. My uncle loved it. He loved the killings. He used to say, do it cowboy style. Bang them right out in the street in broad daylight. He wanted people to know that we were serious, that we weren't playing games. The Atlantic County Prosecutor's Office knew that Nicky Scarfo and his gang were serious charged Philip Leonetti with the murder of Pepe Leva. The detectives knew I didn't kill Pepe Leva because they had me under surveillance the night that he got killed. I was in a bar the whole night, and they were in there watching me the whole time, those motherfuckers. But they tried to pin it on me anyway. They got a guy who worked at the trash dump where we did the killing to give a statement and identify me as the shooter. A couple weeks later, the owner of the trash dump's wife called Harold Garber who was one of our lawyers, and told him what had happened, and that the cops had made the guy say that it was me, and that he wanted to set the record straight and tell the truth, that it wasn't me. My uncle always hated the police. He called them all no-good, dirty cocksuckers. Now, this woman used to hang out at the old penguin club that my uncle owned with Tommy Butch. So Harold has to bring the guy to Vince Sausto's insurance office, and he takes a statement from him where he says it wasn't me who did the killing, which it wasn't. Now, at the time, the witness was being watched by two detectives from the prosecutor's office who were protecting him from us. They were convinced that me and my uncle were going to kill this guy, 
so he wouldn't be able to testify against him. The cops thought he was going to do some insurance business with Vince, so they waited outside. They had no idea that Harold was inside the office and that the guy was coming to give a statement that would ultimately kill their case against me. The guy turned out to be a stand-up guy. I just wanted to tell the truth. Based on the witness recantation, the murder charges against Philip Leonetti were dropped. Scarfo and Leonetti's reputations were not only known in Atlantic City and Philadelphia, but in mob circles in North Jersey and New York, where guys like Tony Bananas, Capo Negro, and Bobby Manna were updating their crews on what the gangsters in Atlantic City were up to. What was about to happen next would put them in a whole different stratosphere. The Payback one of Nicky Scarfo's oldest friends and top associates, Nicholas Nick the Blade Virgilio, had received a 12 to 15 year sentence for a 1972 killing that occurred while Nicky Scarfo was locked up in Yardville. From behind bars, Scarfo, through his nephew, Philip Leonetti, and attorney Harold Garver, had arranged for a $6,000 bribe to be paid to the judge on the Blade's case in exchange for a lenient sentence. The deal had been brokered using a Wheeler dealer Atlantic City lawyer and shyster named Edwin Eddie Helfant, himself a part-time municipal court judge who was facing an indictment for fixing cases in the Summers Point Municipal Court. Helfant owned the Flamingo Hotel in Atlantic City, where Philip Leonetti and Pepe Leva had gotten into a fight eight days before he was killed. Instead of paying off the judge in the Blades case, Helfant kept the money for himself and split it with a friend an associate of Nicky Scarfo's named Alvin Felton. The Blade received a substantial prison sentence. The double cross would eventually cost both Eddie Helfant and Alvin Feldman their lives. Back in 1972, when my uncle was in Yardville and he found out what Judge Helfant and Alvin Feldman did to the Blade, he went nuts. He was furious. I'd never seen him this angry. Adding to that, my uncle believed that Judge Helfand gave testimony to the SCI. The same commission my uncle, Angelo Bruno, Jerry Catina, Bobby Manna, and those guys refused to testify in front of, and that he had talked about my uncle and Ange to the SCI. My uncle also believed that Judge Helfand was talking to the FBI. He would say, this guy is a double agent. He's no fucking good. Scarfo shared the same sentiment about his partner. Alvin Feldman. This Alvin Feldman was no fucking good. He called himself the King of the Jews. He had a couple of dirty bookstores with my uncle, and the word going around Atlantic City was that Alvin Feldman was going to kill my uncle by putting a bomb in his car. In addition, my uncle knew that he was ripping him off and skimming money from the businesses. This was going on before my uncle went to prison. My uncle used to say he was a backstabbing cocksucker, but my uncle couldn't get the okay to kill him because at the time, Alvin Feldman owed $60,000 to Pappy Ippolito, who was one of Ange's top guys. Ange told my uncle that once Pappy got his money back, my uncle could have him killed. I remember my uncle saying to me, I wish I had the $60,000. I'd pay the Jews' debt to Pappy myself. That's how bad I want to whack this motherfucker. So one day, my uncle approached Ange in Yardville and told him he wanted to kill three people told him he wanted to kill his two partners in Atlantic City, Tommy Butch and Alvin Feldman, and that he wanted to kill Judge Helfand. 
after my uncle gave his reasoning for each of the killings and told Ange that he knew Pappy Ippolito had gotten his money back from Alvin Feldman, Ange gave him the okay to kill all three. Thomas Tommy Butch Bucci ran the Penguin Club with Nicky Scarfo in the late 1960s and early 70s on Atlantic Avenue, near the corner of Virginia in Atlantic City. The lounge, which featured strippers, was considered a bust-out joint, where the working girls tried to hustle male customers by enticing them to buy overpriced bottles of champagne. The Penguin Club was a dump, but my uncle was making money there. My uncle was loaning money and making book out of there, but when my uncle went to jail, Tommy Butch stopped paying off the cops, and eventually the place got shut down. This made my uncle furious, and this is why he wanted to kill Tommy Butch. He would say, if this cheap motherfucker didn't start paying those no-good greedy cocksuckers, I'd still be making money over there. Butch knew that Scarfo would want him dead, and within weeks of the Penguin Club closing down, Tommy Butch left Atlantic City and resettled himself in South Philadelphia, working for Funzie and Mark Marconi, two guys that Scarfo knew well. The move would save Bucci's life. When my uncle was younger, he and Mark Marconi were the best of friends, but they had a falling. It was a big mess, and it put a strain on their relationship. My uncle told me, if Tommy Butch starts coming back down to Atlantic City, I want you to tell the Blade to kill him on the spot stays in Philadelphia, I will leave him alone for now. This was before the Blade went to jail, probably 1971. While Tommy Butch got a pass, the King of the Jews wasn't as lucky. Joseph Scaliat was a member of our organization who was based in northeastern Pennsylvania. He was part of Santo Idone's regime. Joseph Scaliat reaches out to Alvin Feldman tells him that he wants his help in torching a warehouse in Pennsylvania, and Alvin Feldman goes for it, thinking it's a score. This guy never turned down an opportunity to make money. My uncle used to say, this cocksucker is so greedy he'd kill his own mother for $200. So once Scaliac gets Alvin to the warehouse, Santo Idone, Chicky Narducci, and Chicky Ciancalini run up on him and start roughing him up. Santo Idone grabs him from behind, and Chicky Narducci goes to stab him with an ice pick. But Alvin gets away, and Chicky ends up stabbing Santo. As Alvin is running away, Giancalini grabs him, and Giancalini is big and as strong as an ox. The king of the Jews didn't have a chance. Chicky ended up killing him with the ice pick, while Giancalini held him, and they dumped his body down some sort of sewer out in the woods. When my uncle heard the details, he loved it. He said, I hope the rats in that sewer ate the eyeballs out of his fucking head. Eddie Helfant, the third person Scarfo had gotten permission to whack, was living on borrowed time. Only he didn't know it. My uncle decided to wait for the Blade to get out of jail before they would kill him. He wanted to give the Blade the opportunity to kill him himself. When my uncle got out of jail, Judge Helfant came to see him and had concocted some story about the judge in the Blade's case taking the money, and not doing the right thing. My uncle pretended like he bought it, but we knew he was lying. He was no good, and my uncle had had enough of it. But Scarfo decided to lull the unsuspecting Helfant into thinking everyone was okay, that all had been forgotten. 
Judge Helfant was having problems with his own indictment for fixing cases, and he came to see my uncle for help. He wanted my uncle and Harold Garber to fly down to Atlanta and talk to one of the witnesses about not testifying. So my uncle flies down to Atlanta with Harold and meets with the witness, and lo and behold, the guy doesn't want to testify. And now Judge Helfant might actually beat his case. So one day I'm having lunch with my uncle at the Madrid. Chucky and Lawrence were with us, and Lawrence says, Nick, why would you go all the way to Atlanta to help this guy after everything he has done? So my uncle says, I don't want him to go to jail. I want to kill him. That's the extent that he went to to set the trap for this guy. Like Louis DeMarco and Pepe Levin, Judge Helfant never saw it coming. Loud and boisterous and somewhat tipsy, Helfant was in good spirits as his legal team expected to win a motion to dismiss his indictment in two days, thanks to Nicky Scarfo's recent trip to Atlanta, ending what had been a decade-long fight by prosecutors to put the crooked judge in jail. Eddie Helfant was sitting on top of the world. He had less than 30 seconds to enjoy the view. Judge Helfant, his wife, and another couple were sitting at a table. The Muhammad Ali Leon Spinks fight was showing on a closed circuit television behind them. As the snow fell on this cold February night, no one thought anything of the tall and somewhat lanky man who walked into the flamingo with a snow shovel in his right hand and wearing a black ski mask. The man placed the snow shovel near the door and moved swiftly toward the judge's table, which had been pinpointed moments earlier by a spotter who relayed the information to the man with the shovel. The lounge was packed and dimly lit, and no one seemed to pay attention to the man in the ski mask swiftly approaching the judge's table. 